We're out to Fitzgerald Marine Reserve in Moss Beach, California. We came here today to do some tide pool photography. If you live near a coastal area, you'll usually find a safe, rocky coastline that when low tide happens, a whole host of sea creatures and life is revealed. I'm Terry Vanderheiden, and this is the Nature Photography Podcast. This episode is about photographing at the tide pools. To prepare for this, we first checked when low tide was. Tides change about every six hours. In keeping with when this area is open to the public, our low tide choices on this day were 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. For obvious reasons, not the least of which is navigating slippery rocks in the dark, low tide at night is not going to work for us. So that left us with choosing a daytime tide that worked. Here's how we arrived at that. The tides change from day to day, advancing about 40 minutes. That means that when low tide is about 6 a.m. on a Monday, Tuesday morning, low tide will be about 6.40 a.m. In the case of the Fitzgerald Marine Reserve, the hours are from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. And we wanted to make sure we were here and ready to photograph at low tide. Our low tide today is at 9 a.m. So getting here at 8 a.m. would give us the best opportunity to move out with the lessening tide and not be worried about the tide coming back in, making us move back in right away. The other thing I know about shooting at a tide pool is that you're ideally looking for ultra low tides. It's pretty simple. The lower the tide, the farther out you can explore, and the farther out you can go, the more species are revealed. Tides are easy to follow and determine. I use an app on my phone that's called Tides Near Me. It seems to work pretty well, but I'm sure there's many apps out there or just a simple internet search that will give you an accurate tide table from where you're at. Off the coast of California, the lowest tides we see are usually in the winter because the moon is closer to the earth and thus increases the gravitational pull from the moon. This yields high tides that are usually higher than normal and also the opposite effect that low tides are lower than normal. These tides are called minus tides. Also in the winter in the Bay Area, there's a real possibility of sleeper waves. This is a phenomenon that happens every year when the storms gather in the Pacific and huge waves can unexpectedly sweep the beachgoers into the ocean. The winter also brings a stronger undertow so the victims that are swept off their feet are rapidly pulled away from shore into very cold water, sometimes never to be seen again. As a warning, when you're out photographing and concentrating on what's in your viewfinder, keep vigilant about the possibility of rogue waves. Always do this type of shooting with a partner, just to keep the other one safe. So what kind of gear do you want to bring out to a tide pool shoot? Most cases, all you'll need to bring is a macro lens and a flash, since you'll be photographing in shallow pools that form when the waves recede. You can also skip the flash and just use available light. If you decide to go this way, not using a flash, you will need to bring a polarizing filter. This filter will help cut the reflection on the surface of the water and the reflections on the kelp and such. So let's do a quick refresher on how to use a polarizer filter. 
A polarizer is one of the two filters I recommend to my students and other photographers to have in their camera bags. The other filter is a neutral density filter, which we can talk about another time. The polarizer works like your sunglasses to cut the glare. And just like your sunglasses, they only work when the direction of sunlight is at the correct angle. The advantage to the polarizer filter is that most of the time it has a rotating lens front. Sometimes this filter is called a circular polarizer. This allows the photographer to rotate the polarizer filter to do the most elimination of glare. On top of each circular polarizer usually is a painted dot. This dot is for orientation. The simple way is just to keep the dot pointed at the sun. The best way to use a polarizer filter is to attach it to the camera and look through the lens and rotate the filter. This will show you when the filter is in the best position to eliminate the most glare. When you do this, you'll lose about a stop and a half of light. So you may need to raise up your ISO to compensate for the outside light. The nice thing is, is you're at the beach. So there should be plenty of light there. If you didn't know already, now you know how to properly use a polarizer filter. This is not a filter to keep on your lens. I see this all the time. Photographers leave the polarizer on the lens. Think of the polarizer filter as a filter to be used between say 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. The polarizer does little good for early morning and late afternoon shots because the angle of the sunlight just isn't there yet. There is seldom a reason to use the polarizer at night or with a flash since you don't have the sun creating glare you need to eliminate. So take it off when the light is not creating glare. Now back to the tide pools. If you want to use available light and a polarizer, find your subject and put it in the frame of your camera. Rotate the filter so the glare disappears as you look through the viewfinder. That's the most foolproof way of using the polarizer. At the tide pools, some of your subjects will be under a few inches of water. This will cause a few issues, so you need to know how to shoot through a few inches of water. Let's go back to the beginning and talk about how to prep for all of this. The first thing I start with is to wear my waders and wading boots. These boots have small metal nubs on them and they reduce the probability of me slipping on the rocks. As you can imagine, stepping over tide pools on the moss and seaweed covered rocks can result in a nasty fall. That's why I use the waders and the studded boots. Now I desperately try to avoid stepping in the tide pools. After all, this is home to many creatures. Just because I have waders on doesn't mean I can go slogging around wherever I want. It's important to be cautious wherever you step while you're visiting the tide pools. Don't go bulldogging over areas where mussels are attached or other sea creatures are trying to survive until that tide comes back in. Another good reason not to step in the tide pools is that you'll unsettle the silt that will then cloud up your photographs and make that pool unusable for quite a while. Be sure to know and follow the guidelines at your destination. At the Fitzgerald Reserve, there's no touching of animals, no removing or even moving them to a better spot for photography. Just shoot as you find things and do not disrupt these animals' lives. That way, yourself and others can keep coming back again and again. With the waders on, depending on what I'm shooting that day, if it's close up, I'll just bring my macro lens attached to the camera and a ring flash attached to the lens, and that's it. 
I also carry with me a kneeling pad. These are made out of really super dense foam and can be found for about four bucks at Harbor Freight. I think they're meant to be sold to gardeners who have to kneel all the time. But this is perfect for getting down onto the rocks to get yourself low to the subject. That's another good reason to wear waders because you're not going to get wet when you're laying down shooting. It takes a little getting used to to photograph in the tide pools. You have to sometimes deal with water between you and your subject and the glare from the sky reflecting off the surface of the water. While we already talked about using a polarizer, if you're using a ring flash like me, there are some other considerations. What I did is some practice in my backyard a few days before I went to the tide pools. I'm outside in my backyard and what I'm doing here is making a test tide pool to work on a few shooting techniques. I found a shallow bucket and I've lined it with a black garbage bag. I then filled it halfway with some small rocks that I have found in the yard. I'm trying to replicate what I'd find at the tide pools in terms of how my light's going to work and how to avoid reflections from the overcast light. I need to place it in an accessible location so I can easily photograph it. If I don't need to lay on the ground to do it, so much the better. I'll be doing plenty of that when I get to the tide pools. I'll place it on my picnic table for my test and let it sit overnight to settle of any of the floating material that's in the water. Okay, my little test tide pool's been sitting overnight, so all the things that were swirling around in the water have settled right into place. I happen to have an overcast morning, which should be similar to what I'll find over at the coast. I've decided to mostly use my ring flash for the lighting, and I've discovered that as long as I shoot into the shallow water at a slight angle, I don't have any reflection problems. This eliminates the straight down shots, but I don't think that's gonna be a big deal. On a ring flash, the flash hangs onto the front of the macro lens. This makes it easy to shoot close-up subjects because I don't have to worry about holding the flash with one hand and trying to get it to the right position. Also, I don't have to be concerned with shadows caused by the flash being on top of the camera hooked into the hot shoe. Sometimes the flash from that angle can cause shadows of the lens since it will be lighting from behind the lens. What I use as a ring light is the Nissan MF-18. I chose it because of the power flexibility of the ring light, also being able to change the intensity of one side or the other of the ring light, because it's, it's divided up into two halves, an A side and a B side. This allows me to have a stronger light coming from the right side if I want, and the left side can just be fill light. I also can rotate it so the light comes from above and is balanced with some fill light from below. There are several ring lights available on the market, so go check them out and see if you might want to add one of these to your camera bag. I'm back at the tide pools and just walking around, I can see many things that were living underwater just a short time ago. There's a starfish clinging to the rocks right out in the open. Mussels in large groups are attached to the rocks. I love the smell of the fresh seawater as it crashes over the rocks in the distance. Since I'm here just before low tide, each wave pulls back just a little bit, revealing more wildlife subjects. 
Hey, look at this. A tiny crab is making his way around in the seaweed. This is a fun subject to photograph. When you try to get close up, he moves quite a bit faster than he seemed to. Since everything is magnified, this is one of the challenges. So I just watch him for a few minutes and see if he's developing a pattern. Then I'll set up and try to capture him as he goes by. Again, I'm not going to be moving this little crab to a better area to photograph. I just got to deal with where he's at. Here's a nice find, a bright green sea anemone. He's just under the surface of the water with his tentacles extending and moving just slightly. Since the tide has moved away, this little pool has really still water. So the sea anemone is very clear. I do have some overcast reflections on the surface of the water, but since I tested it the other day in my backyard, I know how to deal with this. First, I have to shoot at an angle. Since this subject is clinging to the edge of a rock, the angle is already set up for me. In order to get a straight shot, I need to come in at an angle that's about 45 degrees to the surface of the water. Now there's no glare created from my flash. I'm shooting with the ring light, so the illumination is great. I learned from shooting in the backyard in my fake tide pool sample that I do lose some light that has to penetrate the water to get to my subject. This is an easy fix. I either pump up the power of the flash, open the lens up a little more, or bump up my ISO. I'll just increase the power of the flash. This is great stuff shooting out in the tide pool. So let's get back to the studio and take a look at these on the computer and see what steps are next. I've brought up the image of the sea anemone here in Lightroom, and there are a few things that I need to work on. First off, I was photographing through the water, so my contrast was dropped quite a bit. So all I need to do is add contrast by moving the contrast slider. Now this isn't a slider I use too often, but under these conditions, this is what we need to use. Once I get the desired look, I pull it back just a little bit and then go down to the DHA slider. This slider is kind of a micro contrast, so I can creep up on the contrast that I'm looking for. When bumping up the color in Lightroom, you have two choices, vibrance and saturation. Saturation will increase all the colors in the image. This can work well, but can also be overdone pretty quickly. Vibrance, on the other hand, will increase colors that are not too bold to begin with. Think of it as raising the intensity of, say, the mid-tones of the photograph. I find that it works well with cool colors like teal and green to intensify those colors. Luckily, the sea anemone is mostly green, so I can be a bit more free with this slider to bring up the colors that were lost through those few inches of seawater in the tide pools. The final step that I need to go to in, and I do it kind of in Lightroom, is I export it out to... A sharpening program. I use the Topaz AI sharpener program. It's fantastic. It does take a little bit of while to process, but the quality is really good. So I take it out and sharpen it because again, we're going through that section of water. So you've got your nice sharp lens and then you've got space and water that will then kind of soften the image. So we need to sharpen it back up. So we will cheat, go into AI sharpener and sharpen that whole thing up. 
So it really looks good. It takes a little bit, but it's worth the trouble. If you're not into shooting close-up images of critters in and around the tide pools, don't discount this as a place to go for wildlife photography. As the tide moves out, revealing small ponds of saltwater, the life is exposed. This can also mean what is revealed is one giant smorgasbord for the other animals looking for an easy meal of seafood stuck in the tide pools. As you're visiting, you'll notice a large influx of other animals, such as raccoons, otters, cranes, and other birds, that now have a whole host of new meals available to them. In all wildlife photography, figuring out the habitat that the animals that you want to photograph live in is important to finding the wildlife in the first place. First, where is the nearest form of water for them to drink? And especially, where is the food source? At the tide pools, the food source is abundant and yields many opportunities for fantastic wildlife photography. So if you're not gonna go for the close-up photography in the tide pools, keep a lookout for what's outside of the tide pools that might be a wildlife opportunity for you to photograph. So if you have accessibility to tide pools or are planning a vacation to a coastal area, check out the tide tables in that area and make some time to go shoot at the tide pools. You can always head over to my website, imagelight.com, and see some of the image we shot during this podcast so you can get a better feeling for what we're doing on this shoot at the tide pools. I would like to ask a favor of you if you're enjoying these nature photography podcast episodes. Take a minute to tell another outdoor photographer about it. Maybe make a quick post on your Instagram or Facebook page. It would help a lot in getting the people to discover this podcast. It's been getting quite a bit of traction of late, and I'd like to keep that going. The podcast can be easily found by typing in The Nature Photography Podcast. For some reason, the word the in the beginning is important. Another way to help spread word is to leave a positive review on the site where you get your podcast, be that the Apple Podcast or Spotify, etc. As always, you can contact me with questions or suggestions for future podcasts. I answer all of my email. Just send it to terry at imagelight.com. That's spelled T-E-R-R-Y at I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T dot com. Until next time, this is Terry Vanderheiden with the Nature Photography Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.